civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people. We urgently need financial, political and social innovations that enable us to overcome this structural dependency on growth. We need to change the system. This isn't cleaning up the beaches in the case of plastic a little bit faster. That's vital. That has to be done. But you need to stem the flow. Gosimon explores sustainable change and the women inspiring it. Who are they? What made them who they are? How do they read the world they live in? Our guests share their story, roots, passions and hopes for the future. They tell us more about the alternatives and strategies they developed to tackle climate change. Hello everyone. It's good to be back. It's a new year and we are very happy to bring you new testimonials, perspectives of women working on climate justice issues. To start this 24th episode of Go Simone, a poem called Life View by Juliette Desayini. One breath, one wave, ripples, energy, flux, whirlpools, lines, one substance to love and to cherish, not to consume. To consume is to take and throw away in the darkness and have the weight of that growing bulk pressed down even harder in our bellies. But we don't feel it as it never leaves us. Kick it off. And with that newfound freedom, worry about the things that actually matter. You were worried, though you were unaware. Midas had it all wrong. He needn't have touched anything. Could have just looked. He needn't have wished for something. He already had. Gold is gold because we see it so. Flow is also beyond bosons and neutrinos, between what's inside and outside, and imagined and really there. Juliette Desayeni is our Simone today. She's based in Paris. She is an ecosophist, an artist, a writer, a zero waster, a rewilding advocate. With Juliette, we talked about being homeschooled and the opportunities it offered. Art to respond to big questions, upcycling, sedentary living and its implications on sustainability, low-tech lifestyle, the necessity of anger to take action, space colonialism, the importance of dialogue and having conversations. Hi, Juliette. Hi, Roxanne. Thank you very much for joining us today for uh, this episode of Go Simon. Our first question is a bit of a, of a ritual question uh, at the start of each episode of Go Simon. Um, I was curious to know where you grew up and what kind of childhood you had. So I grew up in, uh, in France, not very far from uh, Paris, near Fontainebleau, which is a place some people know for rock climbing and things like that. I was, yeah, with a family of four children, so had a lot of uh, activity with siblings and was homeschooled, so that was quite a particular lens on uh, growing up and uh, encouraged to go outside a lot and be creative and having a lot of free time from schooling. <laughs> What kind of relationship did you have with your parents? A very good one, very lucky for that. Yeah, no, they were very, uh, very encouraging to you know, be yourself and do things differently if you thought that that was the right thing to do. 
How would you describe your relationship with nature? I was encouraged to go outside a lot. We lived in a village and we had a big garden. And so we were more playing outside than watching screens and things. I think a lot of children see that as a as a chore or as a, they would rather be inside. But I was lucky to always have liked that and liked very much, you know, spent a lot of even my teenage years doing things like building tree houses rather than going to parties, which I wasn't even aware were happening, but you know. Do you have memories in your childhood uh, that could explain the origin of your values, of your activism? I mean, I think I feel very lucky for, or grateful for a, a mix of, you know, circumstances of the way my parents educated me and my siblings and where I grew up and the kind of people I met and my parents' friends I met and heard what they were saying and whatnot, which all kind of forge a certain worldview and ethics and ideas on things. And also just like a predisposition to like nature and to, you know, feel connected and I think that all that led me to have appreciation for a rich connection with nature and your surroundings in general like not just nature I think even things like you know my mum being attentive and like explaining to me about the materials that clothes were made of while I was helping her pick out an outfit for a mum's night out that's maybe not the first thing that springs to mind when you think of relationship to nature but I think that's the kind of things that forge you know and I was like oh okay so materials do have different particularities and textures and the way they're made and you know she was all about keeping things for a long time and stuff. So did you stay homeschooled for your entire childhood up to high school? Uh, no just for primary school so uh, up to the ages of about 11 then you get the culture shock of going to school and having to deal with other kids. Was it an actual shock for you? Um, kind of, because when you grow up surrounded more by other adults or a kind of a wider variety, there's a lot less competition when you're not, especially with people your own age. And so I think the competitiveness and also the normativity of what was expected of you I found quite strange and quite difficult and people expected you to know you know what was on tv and what songs were popular and I had no idea because you know my dad was listening to opera so I was completely lost <laughs> I think there are very different responses you can have to that of either being kind of traumatized and feeling really you know, unsure of yourself and really kind of put down because you don't fit in or whatever. I think I was lucky to already have reached a stage of, okay, well, you know, I'm going to deal with this. And actually it just turned into a very kind of, well, I don't actually care what other people think kind of attitude. When and how did you become aware of uh, global warming in particular and the need to do something about it? Do you remember a moment where you realized the urgency? It's interesting because my boyfriend had asked me that question once and I was like, hmm, good question, I wonder. <laughs> and uh, I tried to trace back a few things. And I think it's kind of a mix of all of that, you know, going outside, becoming gradually aware of complexity and richness and surroundings. So it's hard to pinpoint a specific moment. But I think my time at university was quite a kind of a catalyst in becoming much more kind of concretely aware. I think the basis of like my ethics and things I was concerned with was already there, but it wasn't sort of formulated in a specific way. 
but I did uh, art studies on a course that was very kind of concerned with with asking questions and kind of considering the wider picture and all the rest of it. And then my tutors and whatnot were very kind of concretely environmentally aware. Sometimes I look back at stuff I did in first year and I'm like, wow, I would never have done that now because, you know, just in terms of things like consumer choices and whatever, I think it was really there that things changed. I came across a post you wrote about your experience in a, what you call a post-grad school of life. <laughs> Could you describe for us what it is exactly? It's the idea that you still obviously continue to evolve and forge your own ideas after having left university and that there's a lot of things where you can have seeds planted, but you need to then like either create yourself or let a context for those seeds to actually flourish in something. And so similarly, even though I had become more aware of things and whatnot at uni, you know, right after I wasn't like in my actions and awareness, I wasn't where I'm at now. The only things really that changed since then is that I kind of let things happen and, you know, let little sparks of interest and things get bigger and take on momentum and also to like dare kind of do things it's like you get the seeds planted of okay I'm interested in that or that bit until you actually like act upon them kind of in real life and just also through all the experiences you go through which you can even do in a passive way I don't mean like going to travel the world but just looking and listening and being aware and having conversations that's all things that then forge ideas as much as the conversations you can have in a university setting you are a multi-instrumentalist some sort of a of a swiss knife as as we call it sometimes you write you philosophize you draw you teach how would you describe your activities to someone who who has no idea I often often have a little bit of trouble <laughs> and I'm like, well, where shall I start? But um, yeah, it depends very much on who's asking me and what the context is. Yeah, I like trying to explain a bit organically how, because it can seem like things are disconnected when you do a lot of things. But for me, it's all very much connected. It's just different expressions very true to the course I did at university where we weren't it wasn't fine art so it wasn't like you're a painter or you're a sculptor or whatever it was about the questions underlying all of that that was the main focus a bit like the main focus is philosophy but instead of writing you have to make things and so for me it's more like there's you know cultivating the underlying questions and what I'm interested in what I'm thinking about the world and the kind of mind frame and being critical and stuff. And then it's just applied to different things or expressed in different ways, depending on what's most appropriate. So one time it might be something very explicit, like I'm going to write an article or something. And another time it might be, say, writing as well, but something much less explicit like a poem because at that moment that's going to feel more appropriate to answer the question and try and resonate rather than answering the question maybe bringing up other questions in another way so what's the conductor of all that you you were saying the underlying themes what's your main inspirations i suppose more than 
know what would sound like a good answer for this kind of podcast, like environmental awareness. I think it's more complexity and what seems to make sense, because for me, something like environmental awareness isn't so much a thing in itself than the consequence of logical and critical thinking and a kind of a holistic worldview and holistic thinking, even though I don't much like the word holistic, but there you go, it's appropriate for what I like. And so I think it's more that it's like looking at the links between things and the connections between things and the value of small things which are often underlooked. It's system thinking with a with a look on the micro as well on the micro phenomena. Yeah, and how the you know how the micro can affect the macro, and because I it also you know then I see that in loads of different contexts and in in areas which look quite different, that actually the kind of the errors or the ways people think or behave, which can be either good or problematic, are actually often the same. I find it's quite curious how. I was talking about this with a friend the other day, how people seem to have a lot of trouble with abstraction. And I find it's really fascinating because you're kind of taking away the specificities and just looking at the the patterns and the way things work. And the often it's very kind of telling or it gives you answers that seem really obvious, but it's something which people seem to have a lot of trouble doing and we're always focused on the specifics and I find it's interesting to try and look at the bigger picture in the abstraction to understand best. You managed a thrift store for a little while I think so uh, called La Petite Boutique and can you tell us more about this uh, endeavor of creating a space uh, dedicated to what you describe as the unloved, the trash, the unwanted, the overlooked? What was the ambition of that place? Well, the ambition was kind of very clear was just to make a thrift store that didn't lose too much money. And uh, and also one of the objectives was that it re-sparked life in the town centre because it was in a suburb, kind of Parisian suburb, uh, which, like a lot of suburbs, wasn't isn't doing very well. And so that was one of the objectives which you know, I'm very happy to say was fulfilled because some people said that you know they came back to the town centre because my shop was there and so they found there was an interest again. So that was the kind of baseline. And then it was basically free reign, just make something nice. But it was a really interesting experience kind of beyond what I could have imagined because me getting to know people and there was an exchange in that sense of kind of listening to what people had to say and also catering for them. And even, you know, with the whole multicultural aspect that you often find in heavy immigration suburbs of actually learning a lot from people and being curious and having conversations, which, you know, people don't always have, especially because we think, you know, oh, I'll have a environmental conversation with environmental activists and then I'll talk about the weather with, you know, someone in a pub whereas I think it's funner to talk about environmental activism with someone in a pub and something else that they're not too happy with with environmental activists a bit of a sore point just for the fun of it and it was very interesting also to see to have the kind of organic experience of just doing what felt right whereas even within the realm of you know thrift store kind of management 
I was kind of going many steps further than was actually expected in terms of, you know, what I was willing to keep or sort. I realised my idea, which was literally, you know, I'm going to keep as much everything as possible and I can find a use for everything, was not the norm even within that sector. And so it was also quite another kind of, call it boost in my thinking, of realising the extent to which there was a, even a kind of a normativity and a uncreative way of doing things, even in an area which you would think would lend itself to that. And it was kind of fun because I surprised other people within the sector because they thought, you know, oh, don't ever sell this really rusty old random thing. It's like how I said on my website, the unloved or the unwanted, you know, people would bring me a shoebox full of their grandmother's sewing things. And 99% of people, even within running thrift stores, would just have binned it. They wouldn't have, you know, sorted out the needle from the thimble, from the mushed together thread. But I would be like, well, you know, I have a use for this. So I would sort it. And then I could use the thread for fixing something or sell the thimble and the thing. And it always worked out. And it also created activity. And that was the thing people liked was to see, you know, because then I would do that in front of people. And so they would come and they'd see me sorting the shoebox. And they also knew that, you know, there was a kind of a genuine element to what actually trying to go the full way. Yeah, and then talking and asking, you don't know what something is, you ask clients about it, I learned lots of things that way. So why did you end up stopping this activity? Like in a lot of um, well-meaning sectors, it's not always well run, and uh, the manager was a complete crook, and uh, and he he didn't pay the rent, and there was €400,000 worth of debt, because it wasn't just me, there was a whole bunch of other places. So even though people really liked it, it closed. So there were people who were hoping to come back to get Christmas presents and they couldn't. So you didn't want to create your own? Yes, I'm trying to. I'm currently waiting for the uh, the Mary Mayer to uh, answer my emails. No, because everyone thought it was a great idea and was really keen to have something like that. Because when there's very little social links as well, it was a very good vector social connection as well yeah no I had loads of people writing me really nice things that I kept online of saying you know why they thought it was valuables and also getting you know crossing populations because it was the kind of place where wealthy people are also going to meet and have conversations with much more working class people with interactions which they wouldn't really have in any other space so that was also very valuable On your website, I noticed a quote that I really liked from William McDonough. He wrote that book called Upcycle. And he says, doing less bad is not the same as doing more good. We are seeing the uptake of this idea. Don't think about minimizing the footprint of a person of society. Think about a beneficial footprint. It really resonates with the problem of climativists in general uh, who tend to focus uh, very much their communications on the reduce, the refuse, the lower, less, etc., which can tend to be perceived negatively because really most people hear hardship, deprivation, difficulties, etc., etc. Do you think the way we speak about limiting our impact uh, on the environment limits our ability to act and create change and imagine a better future? 
definitely like obviously I agree with you that the I think the vocabulary is really important and that people do perceive the very limiting aspect and I think you know no one wants to be punished or make a harder life for themselves and I think that we do a big disservice talking about like you say talking about the talking in the negative all the time whereas we forget that you know it's like a job interview if someone asks you oh what are your weaknesses you think that they're you know the opposite of your strengths or the other way around well each negative aspect or you know word connotation has a positive counterpart and why can't we talk about the positive counterpart there's a thinker I like a lot who says that it's the same for the trend with minimalism it's all very nice to talk about minimalism but she says why can't we focus instead on talking on maximalism instead there's Katie Bauman a biomechanist that I really like she says really interesting things because it's true that, you know, having less stuff is one thing, but less stuff means that you have more freedom, more space, you're more carefree. And I think that that's definitely something which should be pushed more for. Yeah. With the very strict lockdown we had at some point, we got to see, uh, for example, a, a transformed city with less car, etc., etc. So we would think that it could have fed our imagination with, you know, with less noise, uh, more peaceful kind of city, etc. But we tend to observe that people are actually very keen to return to that old normal, even though they recognize, you know, the, the effects of pollution, the, the problems with noise, the problems with commuting, with a, a life which doesn't really make sense of, you know, taking the metro, going to work, going back, etc., etc., which is a bit absurd. You know, when you think too much about the split between what people kind of express that they like or show that they like and then what people do in their actions, if you focus too much on that, you're just going to give yourself a headache because you can't make sense of it because it's so everywhere, you know, between mm. what we say and what we do. But I think that what's more important is to focus and like to focus energy instead on being like, okay, well, you know, if this is how humanity is, then so be it. But then just giving people examples, I think, to show that they're not doomed. Because I think people have a big sense of feeling that, you know, they're doomed because there's only one way of doing things. So even if they prefer doing something one way, they're not going to do it because, you know, it's not the norm. Other people don't do it. And, you know, they're just going to continue doing things the old way or the way they think is how they should. Whereas if you actually ask them, that's not what they choose to do. You know, one example, which isn't directly environmentally related but a friend of mine from the Ivory Coast who I met at work at the thrift store she was used to carrying things on her head you know back when she lived in Ivory Coast and obviously here she didn't because social norms it's not the way Europeans carry things because I don't care I carry things on my head and because I was cutting things around for the thrift store I'd do that and she thought this was hilarious and but it actually kind of made her think oh it's funny to see someone else doing that maybe actually I can return to doing the way I actually like and know is the best and easiest way because someone else is doing it too you wrote a manifesto that you shared with me. You're working on a project to create a community to discuss a pathway to sustainability, some sort of a platform. Can you tell us a bit more about this project? 
it was the coming together of uh, many different realizations of kind of reflections and concerns I was having personally and you know work aspirations and general realizations about the world all kind of came together I'd wanted to build a community to try and like a platform or media or something to try and give a voice to a kind of a more critical slash informative place where people could access information or create discussions and also talk about deep things like you know ecology and feminism and ecofeminism and colonialism but without actually naming these things because also I think talking negatively about degrowth I think because now people have a lot of uh, ideas associated with certain concepts, you know, often the concept of, oh, you know, this isn't for me, this is other people's interest, that I think a lot of the time it's quite useful to avoid the tags and just talk about the thing without talking about the name of the thing. Because also, you know, if you have a, well, you know, like the thrift store, if you have a thrift store, people might walk in, even if there's art exhibited inside, whereas if you had labelled it art gallery, some people would not have walked in because they would have thought, you know, an art gallery is not for me. So that was one desire was to be able to have everyone in on conversations and also to <laughs> can seem trivial, but to actually present information in a way that makes people want to look at it and read it or access it environmentalism is very full of very terrible design which you know can seem silly but people who aren't super keen are not going to want to look at a really ugly website where they can't find anything so it sometimes it makes me a bit sad because you see people who've started on these really good ideas of making a website to you know to list a whole bunch of alternatives or ways of doing things and stuff, but it's just so badly made that you're like no one other than a really keen ecologist is ever going to go on this. So it was like lots of different paths like that, and also the book I started working on. And actually, I had kind of conversations I wanted to have, which kind of extended a bit beyond that or wanting to be able to give specific people a voice or, you know, present interviews or other things, which is not something I was planning to include in the book. So I wanted a, a platform to be able to. I really like the idea of including those voices that are not particularly keen on sustainability as well, you know, or or heard. Uh, so highlighting highlighting those voices as well. What format were you thinking of? Were you thinking of articles or interviews? So we discovered two days ago that the association we had tried to create actually got created so it exists oh we're gonna have a, a meeting this weekend to uh start on the website but so we were thinking of articles giving people a voice so listening to what people who don't feel concerned but who actually have a real kind of knowledge of something which is somehow environmental even though even they probably wouldn't label it that way or, you know, yeah, understanding generational differences, speaking to people from other non-Europeanized cultures and traditions, knowing how they do things. Classes of society who are often not given a voice either, you know, often are and actually do feel concerned, but just not presented in the way that the kind of mainstream environmental discourse presents it. And, you know, often looking at things also like economics more than 
know, kind of coming in through many different doors, saying there isn't just one ideal and you can not care about polar bears and still be concerned by environmental questions. Quite a big part of what we wanted to do was to make a platform to be able to list all the, how do you call them, actors of ethical consumption you know, so that people you would need to support your kind of daily needs in your area. So like artisans and, you know, ethical shops and all the rest of it. And to have kind of a map of that. So that's quite another big piece. Because it's something which a lot of uh, associations kind of do in part, like Zero Waste France has a aspect of that on their website, a map. Um, and other people do too but they're never complete they never go the full way so you have like tidbits of information right left and center and the problem is that you know thinking of how can this be a model which would be as appealing as the normal consumerist model for me you know it really needs to be as efficient and as easy a bit like how a thrift store should be as well organized and even better than another one you know like the thing of saying not less bad but better even if it can seem exaggerated I think you need to think okay how can my thrift store be better than Ikea you know okay well it's local it's next to people's houses I actually have everything here in a tiny space actually Ikea doesn't you can buy just one of something And so similarly, having a much more kind of thought out critical view on what would be included and what's not. So to actually ask the question of what are the actors of an ethical life? So, for example, a lot of people include markets on these zero waste maps, but markets are not especially particularly ethical or environmental. And just because they're outside and everything's in big piles and it kind of looks nice that's not sufficient and most of the time stuff isn't well sourced and it's all plastic served and it's it's big industrial things whereas little people who you know make things by hand and you see them on a christmas market but they're not very good at their own communication because it's not their thing and whatnot you have no way of finding a trace of them elsewhere connected to the the book which is on that topic but when i had wanted a stone pestle and mortar as a christmas present and i thought i'm sure there must be some artisan somewhere not too far away who makes these you know impossible to find online so you end up going over to amazon because it's the only place you know of but if they if you know if the artisan had a space online to say you know hello i exist i'm here and that it was easy and efficient then i think it would make alternative choices much easier for people as consumers will you uh, develop some guidelines on what you consider ethical what you consider worth adding in that repository of addresses and shops and things like that or are you going to use something existing current labels like fair trade um, organic no well we, we wanted to create a yeah like a, a charter Because you really can't put everything in the same box and some labels are okay, but many labels are not, you know, so it's very kind of... It is confusing for the consumer as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, you can't expect the consumer who's not that informed or interested in being informed to do all the homework. 
you know, I think they would be very keen to follow guidelines someone else has set out. But so saying, well, these are the labels that are thorough enough that we agree that they count. And we thought of having a system where people could add a place or yeah, some kind of some kind of resource that could be user added, yeah, but not yet approved by our guidelines. So you would have a difference and you would know, okay, well, this place is on here, but it hasn't yet been approved, so you know, it's not sure. And then other places which we had actually kind of properly approved, but that you could still have a user-generated base, but also using some of the existing resources, so the other maps which some other actors have made. So in your manifesto, again, you have outlined that the sedentary culture of westernized societies are actually linked to our problems of sustainability. Often sedentary behaviors are discussed from the point of view of health, but you say that we have to actually consider it from a point of view of sustainability as well. Could you explain how it relates to the climate crisis we face? So it's uh, very related and very rarely seen as related. I came to it through, like many things, through many different paths. I was always quite interested in sport, physical activity, things like this. Like half the US, it seems, I read Born to Run, which is a book about Mexican Herrera Muri community and their running skills and the whole paradigm of Uh, running shoe companies developed and actually where they came from, i.e. out of thin air slash the need to address some kind of consumer, well, more the opportunity for a marketing opportunity that there's never been any kind of scientific backup of, yes, you need it. And I thought it was really fascinating to see how in 30 years an idea became quite so ingrained in people's heads There was like a scientifically correct way and you needed these kind of factory made plastic padded things on your feet to run. And people, you know, including myself, who wouldn't before have gone out for run without my trainers, this became ingrained in our minds. And we don't ask, you know, we mostly don't question it. Yeah. So that whole kind of thought process, obviously very quickly with this parallel of factory made, especially with, you know, with running shoes, you get told that if you run a lot, you need to change them every three months. So you think of all these people who are chucking and buying trainers every three months versus how these Mexicans and a lot of other people in the world run in the book they also talk about evolution you know and talking about how for millions of years we were running barefoot and they talk about subsistence hunting and how we were eating meat for a very long time before we developed firearms so uh, firearms sorry yes a long time before firearms but even before other kinds of you know spears and things like this and so the theory is that we chased animals you know running to death for a very long period of evolution and all this was really interesting and I was like wow you know that was the first real practical connection between all this consumerism around sport and exercise versus what the human body can actually do and the fact that you know we've evolved to be able to do certain things like running you know certain aspects of evolution 
you know, of our bodies are apparently quite pointless for walking, but they're useful for running. So there's a theory on the fact that they developed to be able to run better. And so that was the first element of thinking clearly there's something here, you know, between the way we conceive physical movement and sedentarism and how before it was just an integral part of life, which did not require us to consume stuff to do it. And now that's very much the way we view things. So that was the first kind of chapter into it. And then I listened to podcasts by Katie Bauman, who's a biomechanist, who I talk about a lot to friends because she revolutionized my worldview. Because she made these connections very explicit in a much more general way. Because I was having this thought, oh, you know, trainers, sports things, sports rooms, the whole kind of thing around that, how we think that to exercise and to move, we need to consume things and be in more or less man-made environments. And she was talking much more about the small everyday things and because she's a biomechanist she talks in a very kind of scientific quantifiable way when you're sitting on a chair you're specifically not using these various muscles to hold yourself up and you're using resources through the making of a chair and you're also shortening your leg muscles this way in that because sitting at a 90 degree angle has very tangible effects on your body those thoughts, you know, even about how muscle tissues work, the fact that like wearing a bra is using a material man-made thing you need to consume, which is doing the job of your organic tissues, which would normally actually do that job. And we evolved for them to do that job. And so all of this was really kind of eye-opening in terms of understanding so two things, the impact of just how sedentary we are, like I'd never appreciated the fact that, you know, wearing a bra was a kind of a sedentary culture thing. But it's true that basically, because if you see the definition of sedentary as like avoiding your own organic kind of tissues and muscles doing some kind of work, then anything you're using to support yourself is kind of an element of sedentary culture. Obviously, all these things have very large environmental impacts because they're generally mass-produced uh, far away and we change them often and we buy five every year and this, that and the other. So there's a lot of things in there. And what I thought was really fascinating was how you see that obviously because of the way we live, we're surrounded by things which support us and in ways that make us, or, you know, our body elements bits of our bodies move or work less I think work less is maybe a, a better term and that no one was talking about it especially when you see how far it ripples yes I didn't know about it I mean I didn't know about those connections didn't think of it until you mentioned it and I thought yeah started reading about it and I found it so uh, it's quite fascinating really in researching uh, sedentary living I came across an interesting article from a psychiatrist but it was a blog post uh, called Capitalism and Physical Exercise. In this article, he warns the left, the progressive, developing a pro-exercise position that fall into the trap of reactionary ideas around issues of weight, body shaming, uh, social expectations, etc. 
But he says the body, the, the activity, the sports activity have become a, a commodity, something that has a financial value. And we forgot the core purpose of our bodies. I mean, from what you said, what it makes me think of is that you can very quickly, like the line is quite fine on criticism on one hand or another. So you can quickly go into a kind of, a oh, this is, you know, some kind of dictatorial you know, strong Aryan, this kind of view of the perfect man and woman who are all perfectly muscly and stuff. You can quickly fall into that kind of view of things. The other side is also actually extremely inclusive. The person who coined the term of natural movement was the French military naval officer. And there was a really terrible volcanic eruption. And he was horrified at how many people he saw drowning and dying from his ship because they weren't kind of physically able to move and, you know, to escape and to swim with clothes on and all the rest of it and so that was a very kind of marking experience and when he came back to France he developed obstacle courses that people do now are inherited from him but now for example we see military obstacle courses as an elite military thing whereas actually when you look at what he was saying at the time and when you read his books which you know I have here and are really interesting because since you know 1919 basically nothing has changed he was all for you know women and older people and everyone being able to do this not just military elite and saying you know it's not about looking one way or another or just a small percentage of the population being really good at something but it's just a kind of a baseline skill which we should all be honing and developing. That the author wanted to highlight is that within a capitalism uh, paradigm everything is turned into performance, personal best, you know, scoring points, the physical performance, the achievement, the competition between each other rather than, as you said, just coming back to just physical skills that you, you try to, to improve, but just for yourself. Well, or not just for yourself, but also for others, which was, you know, what one big element that Georges Hébert, the military officer, he, he had like an integral part of his discourse was saying that physical ability is also about helping others and that in terms of the human community, that that's really important. So, you know, again, maybe we don't think of that as ecology, but, you know, if you're capable of carrying your neighbor's cupboard to the thrift store because they want to give it away, then maybe that saves them having to call a taxi or something because they can't do it. You know, it might seem silly, but it's all elements of, well, if we're capable of doing things, we can help each other socially, but we can also just, you know, make life nicer for each other on a daily basis. You you mentioned earlier a book you were uh, working on. Can you tell us a bit more about, about it? Yeah, so the, the book is more specific than the platform, but it sort of touches on similar subjects. But it's more specific because it's talking about the links with physical health and sedentarism and ecology, but also specifically about pestilences. So the example of like one specific kind of no-tech tool in your daily life because I kind of through multiple things of being interested in cooking and liking doing things by hand kind of wanted to use one for cooking and then kind of realized that there were lots of possibilities and also realized that no one actually talked about them 
and that whenever you read about things you could do with it, it was always the same thing. Um, and I was really surprised that no one seemed to try anything different. And it seems very capitalist one way of doing things, almost like, you know, that you had a label on all pestilomorses written basil pesto, and that was literally all you could do with it. And so I was kind of curious about these things, thinking, like I said earlier, the fact even just, you know, wanting to find one, oh, well, actually, this sucks that your main options are Amazon or Ikea, kitchen tools like blenders and kitchen robots that we throw away every year. You know, 60% of domestic appliance landfills, electronic goods in landfills, are things like hair dryers and blenders. You know, I thought it would be mostly computers, but actually because those are seen as valuable enough, they're recycled much more. But the things like kitchen tools, those aren't because they're just cheap, not fixable, use them for a year, then it breaks and you get another one. And we just don't think of the impact of it. But when you look at the numbers, you're like, wow, this is actually a big thing. And then also gradually realizing the extent to which doing things manually in the kitchen had an impact on people much more widely. You know, this idea that, well, like you were saying about consumerism of paying for things and competition, that before being physically fit wasn't something you had to pay a gym for or that you had to compete against others for. It was just, you know, baseline of because we had to move to live. Realising all these things and then also being more and more aware of the energy problem and greenwashing and the problems with green energy, which actually, you know, isn't green and all the problems surrounding that. So it was kind of a little ball that started feeding itself more and more. And I was like, wow, there's actually so much to say, just kind of so many deep topics latched onto this one thing of wanting to make food in a pestle and mortar. So it's a kind of a narrative essay. But because again, you know, I don't want something very dry, which people have to be really into it to be interested. I think what's interesting is if lots of different people, you know, just someone who likes well-written nonfiction can pick it up and be like, oh, this seems cool. You know, I found a lot of joy in having connections and things suggested to me, thinking like, oh, wow, this is crazy. I'd never thought of this this way. And that it there's a kind of a joyful feeling to feeling that you kind of feel like you go outside with fresh eyes on. You big believe in a low tech type uh, lifestyle. What do you think of uh, big space endeavors led by Elon Musk or the idea of going to terraform Mars and, and all those things? I was reading there was a connection between climate denial in a way and and those dreams. It sells the idea that basically we can, at some point, we'll be able to travel ourselves over there. There's no need to take care of our of our closest environment. So what your feeling was with, with that idea? It's not a subject that's on the forefront of my mind a lot, but when I do think about it, it just seems so kind of disconnected from reality and like these huge means for things yeah a bit like you say like running away from problems thinking oh we'll find a solution at some point and if you think of money for example that goes into those things 
if they were put into actual solutions, then I think there's a lot that could be done. I mean, I don't deny the fact that scientific progress is definitely, you know, valuable in a lot of ways. And it, in a lot of ways, you know, it enables us to do things consuming less energy. You know, it's very complicated. And when you look at all the energy that goes into finding those solutions, you think, well, maybe if that energy went into pushing people towards a less energy-consuming lifestyle, that would probably be much more directly efficient. And also reading things recently about colonialism makes me even more uncomfortable with that because I was reading this really interesting book about the the links between colonialist uh, worldview and environmental issues the author makes comparison with a kind of a Noah's Ark paradigm and this view between like the the slave ships and kind of running away from the world and how there are different ways of kind of running away from the world and that the kind of Noah's Ark view of I'm just going to take a small elite and kind of leave everyone else to muddle around in their shit yeah, is not especially the kind of nicest way of doing things. So it feels a bit like maybe this idea of kind of running away to other planets could be a kind of a another expression of a of quite a colonial mechanism, which doesn't make me too uh, inclined to jump of joy at the thought of it. <laughs> In the preparation of, of this interview, you mentioned the American author Derek Jensen, and I just wanted to uh, bounce back on his thinking, uh, in particular on violence, because we are seeing uh, a lot of uh, non-violent actions. Well, not, not so much uh, since COVID, uh, not so many actions since COVID, but um, I'm thinking of Extension Rebellion, those groups who are promoting uh, non-violent initiatives to raise awareness around uh, climate change. Derek uh, Jensen, on the contrary, he, he believes that violence may be justified at times, and particularly to self-defend or uh, to resist against uh, oppression. What do you think of, I mean, we are at a point where it's starting to be urgent to make radical changes so that uh, we're not heading to a plus six, seven, eight degrees, whatever that is. Do you think uh, climate activism is meant to be peaceful? What do you think it will take to, to make changes happen? I mean, I'm kind of quite shared on that topic because it's not my kind of spontaneous way of functioning. So, And, you know, I'm much more inclined to dialogue and long, quiet discussions. But I think that both are necessary because... You know, shamedly, people often need a bit of a wake-up call and a bit of shaking around. And, you know, if you look at examples like with the civil rights movements, you know, I don't think you can say that one person's approach was especially better than the other, but that they're kind of complementary and all needed. So I think it shouldn't, you know, take the forefront because I don't think that fundamentally, deep down, it's very constructive. I think maybe anger more than violence is something I'd say is necessary. Anger is a kind of a way of standing up for yourself and saying 
you know, vocally and loudly, you know, this deserves to be heard, or these are the limits, or whatever. So I think that's maybe more more something I see devaluing. Yeah, like a kind of a constructive anger. What about those actions? I don't know if you've seen those actions in France from that group La Ronce, which encourages little damaging actions against big corporations. I'm thinking of the sugar corporations, for example. Uh, they were encouraging to unscrew uh, the caps of the sugar containers so it's it's not violence but it's it's clearly damaging yeah it's more civil disobedience yeah which to be honest is something which i think is more i don't know maybe more impactful is there a personal change you know is necessary to uh, lean towards sustainability but you that you struggle to commit to you know i don't think i'd say there's one big thing because this thing of seeing how complex everything is and how you can't put big labels and say, you know, not eating meat is my personal struggle or whatever, because I think it's a lot more complicated than not eating meat. It's like what meat from where, how, when, whatever. It's also why I don't put big categories onto things. Often, what I don't know, maybe what's difficult is kind of reminding yourself that you do actually find joy and pleasure in something like, oh, you know, I do actually enjoy cycling rather than being picked up in a car, not letting the kind of lazy, comfortable you have the, yeah, have the louder voice. Because especially when you know, like to remind yourself, no, you know, I do actually like this other thing. It's not like I'm punishing myself, but it just requires a bit more motivation initially. So you never feel uh, guilt in your journey to, to be greener and more considerate of the environment around you, etc.? No, because A, because I'm pretty thorough on a lot of things, but also because... I mean, not to say I'm pretty thorough in a kind of like, I'm perfect way, because I don't think there's any such thing as perfectionism. And, you know, I just, you know, I'm speaking to you with a aluminium laptop. It's not like I have zero impact or anything, but I think that working on a kind of a baseline level makes me very kind of appreciative of the weight of things feeling normal in what I'm doing thinking you know okay I'm spending an hour grinding chickpeas in a mortar but I have a laptop and a phone that's like my environmental quota for a lifetime if I can cut back on a max of other things then good and I'm also lucky to be in a very kind of so there's a word in French which you'll know which is bienveillant which doesn't have much of a translation in English because it's not well-meaning but a kind of a a caring and positive environment which means that I don't feel you know like it's a kind of a competition or show of pride of I'm the you know, best environmentalist but just to be grateful and happy when you manage to do things and be in a general kind of enthusiastic growth this is fun and this is actually better and wow my experience of life is so rich and so great like I wish everyone could live this kind of thing so I don't think that leaves any space for guilt I just wanted to quickly touch on uh, ecofeminism you've mentioned it uh, at some point that it was it's actually part of your manifesto some of those uh, theories if we want to call it like that uh, that you are you want to further explore uh, collectively uh, through that platform so you've said it resonates with you can you explain a bit further uh, why because it makes so much bloody sense <laughs> 
it took me a long time to to see the links because at first when I heard about it it was very kind of vague in my mind and I had these kind of you know images of like earth mothers and things and I didn't at all really see the value but when I understood this parallel between care and lack of care for most living and you know human and non-human things and how it was all part of the same kind of attitude that just made so much sense and I was like well yes you know a world in which people are not allowed to wear flowers is also one where they're not going to be caring for the flowers in a field it can seem trivial but I think it's a very you know it's a very present thing and also seeing so again you know being critical of different movements even ones I agree with even seeing that within feminism most of the time it's about women tending towards what are classically masculine values well you know on one hand great you know there's some level of equality achieved you know I think it's good because those values some of them are good you know the ones you think about like strength and courage and all the rest of it obviously those are things everyone should strive for but that it's never the other way whereas for me you know kind of a what I'd like to call a real feminism or something I'd think is proper would be what I discovered was ecofeminism because that's what it calls for but to say that everyone should have you know elements of strength and all the rest of it and masculine values and also the elements of care and communication and what's classically considered feminine values yeah ecofeminism just seems to be the kind of the the term which encompasses the best that we should be striving to have both not one or the other and that everyone shouldn't be going for the masculine values even when you look at the books which are offered on you know feminist bookshelves it's about badass women it's not about caring men we are starting to see some titles uh, saying well how do i raise uh, boys in an empathetic way yeah we're starting which is nice even ones which don't go into much detail about actual care, just in showing different ways of being and, you know, color and expression and things. There's one that I really like, a children's book called The Name of the Little Boy and the Mermaids. It's a really nice book about a little boy who wants to be a mermaid and all his grandmothers. And it's just such a beautiful book and it's really nice. And it doesn't actually say anything very kind of practical but it's just giving you another imaginary and another kind of possibility for men, which I think is so important. If you had a, a magic wand, is there a policy change, a system change that you would make, you would implement tomorrow? Oh, I think I'd have to think a long time about all the ones I would like to do. <laughs> I, I think I would ask a good friend of mine whose job it is to try and push environmental policies. I think I'd ask him for advice. Thibault, if ever you're listening. <laughs> Like, there's a lot of things spontaneously I would think of, but I know that in terms of policies, the ones I think of are probably not the ones that would have the most impact. And so, you know, living with someone whose job it was to deal with these, you know, he'd tell me things and I'd be like, wow, I had no idea that all of this whatever area was controlled by this one policy that's crazy so probably that one policy is the thing I would change but I don't actually know what it is yet so I think I'd have to do a bunch of research when I got that wand. Have you happened to face echo grief and in, in case you have those damn moments what what do you do to, to keep hopeful for the future? 
I think I heard it was called solastasia too. I think it's a new term that was coined for depression related to the environment. I've observed that quite a lot around me, but I don't feel like I have too much other stuff to be doing than to be depressed. (laughs) I mean, I know that obviously you can't always think in such rational terms of thinking, well, what's the point? So I won't think that. But I'm very grateful that I can think that way and because I know it's not going to get me anywhere and there's nothing I can do about it. And I think that, you know, the way of avoiding doing that is, you know, of avoiding falling into that trap is to be doing as much you can so that you know that you've done what's in your realm. I know the Stoics are very popular at the minute on all sorts of um, personal development things, but there is an element of a leaf to take out of their book that, you know, things you can control, you know, having conversations and doing things in your personal life and voting for the right people and whatnot, then if you know you're doing what you can with that, I think that's enough to be satisfied and not feel too depressed. Having conversations is so important, so I think at a moment of feeling depressed just go and talk to someone about it try and spark someone else's interest too and get movements to grow and I think one thing also that stops me being depressed about situations is that having seen how much we can change for the worse you know like the example I was saying earlier of the the trainers that within 30 years everyone has adopted a habit and thinks that it's scientifically proven even if it's not has a lot of trouble going back on it you know if you see that we can get that far with the right tools because the people who pushed for that were being smart in the sense that they were using you know marketing tools and things to be efficient because they had a vested interest in it I think if we kind of adopt a bit that attitude in its good senses, then we're capable of a lot too. And, you know, that's also things I want to push while I wanted to make this platform and stuff is like I was saying about good design, you know, someone who wants to make money, they're going to have a good website that's well designed and they're going to ask people for returns on user experience and is this nice to use and stuff. But then suddenly when you're doing environmental stuff, it's just, kind of less professional in the kind of I don't know capitalist sense but I think that what's smart is of having conversations to make people realize that and to say well you know things like marketing is not the devil it's just it depends how you use it so I think if we try and push to be smart about the tools we use and say well you know these tools have proven that they're capable of making a lot of change happen very fast then maybe we can use these same tools but to our own ends so I think there's reason to be hopeful but if you just have those conversations to conclude, would you like to suggest a cultural reference or something you that inspired you recently? There's so many, it's a difficult choice. I could cite things from reading super old cookbooks which are in your house which you haven't ever picked up because they're really fun to read actually and you learn a lot of things you would never guess. Or French things, I read a really interesting book on wild plants, why we lost the knowledge of wild plants, which was also quite an eye-opener, but I don't know if many French people around there listen if they do. François Couplant, ce que les plantes ont à nous dire. That was really fascinating. Just an article I read the other day, which was a kind of a wow 
article that you don't get very often, which is called Gender Egalitarianism Made Us Human by Camilla Power on libcom.org. I landed on it doing anthropological research for my book and other things. It was really amazing. I was like, wow. Again, challenging the kind of these ideas we have of patriarchy is ingrained in our DNA. And it's like, actually, no. And it talks about how, uh, even from an evolutionary perspective, care and community was clearly favoured at one point because it made a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, it was a really interesting read. Thank you very much, Juliette, for your time today. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thanks, you too. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Karen for our generous time editing and transcripting this episode. It can be found on our website, gosimon.org. I invite you to follow Juliette on social media and check her website, juliettedesayini.org. It is a wonderful, creative and inspiring little hub. Thank you.